Welcome to the Army Medical Department Center of History and Heritage podcast series, Army Medicine History. The opinions and statements of the speakers featured on this podcast are not necessarily the views of the U.S. Army, the Army Medical Center of Excellence, or the Army Medical Department Center of History and Heritage. The goal of this podcast is to share the story of Army Medicine History with soldiers, military, civilians, teachers, researchers, and the general public. Good morning, Scott. Well, good morning, George. It's uh, another day for us to talk about Army medical history. Our favorite subject. And I know that uh, in the timeline of things, uh, because we're a podcast, we can actually insert ourselves in anywhere in the future or in the past. But in particular, uh, because we're recording this in September, uh, the big thing that comes to mind is the Battle of Antietam that took place in 1862 in September. Uh, probably one of my one of my favorite things. I have to say, you know, having lived uh, for many years just a few miles from the battlefield, and having a grandfather who fought in the cornfield uh, in the morning fight, September's always been uh, an amazing time for me. And I have to say, this being my third September away from home, it's uh, I've, I've, I'm feeling a little uh, feeling a little wistful uh, thinking about it. But Antietam. I think many people were probably aware, especially those who are into military history of the Civil War era, that Antietam is the most costly battle uh, we've ever fought. Uh, 23,000 casualties in a period of about 12 hours. Uh, Not even D-Day comes close. And yet, I think people are unaware that the medical advancements that came in part as a result of Antietam, and within about a month and a half after the battle, have probably saved more lives worldwide than can ever be calculated, and far in excess of the number uh, that were casualties that day. Yeah, and I think when we we talk about the casualty count for that one-day battle, 23,000, it's sometimes hard to get your head wrapped around that. But what I try to tell students and just acquaintances and friends is that we talk about, you know, 9-11, and for me in the Army— that totally changed everything I was doing for my Army career. And not to make light of the event, but that event was 3,000 casualties. But we're talking the Battle of Antietam was one day of a four-year war, and they had 3,000 casualties just within the first couple hours of the actual battle. Mm -hmm. So that gives us some kind of number to wrap around our head where my whole life changed in the army on 9-11 and then here is a particular battle that we're talking about with so many casualties just within that one day so let me let me throw this at you because i and i love where you've taken that kind of to put it in context and when i've had soldiers out on the battlefield or especially when i've had students uh high school and college students one of the things i like to tell them is have you been recently to a baseball game or a football game where it wasn't really a sold out audience about how many people fit in that stadium and they'll say oh about twenty-five thousand. okay now have every single one of those people either killed or wounded or simply unaccounted for they're missing every one of them and picture what that looks like if you're standing on the field now looking into the stands and their silence and I, I can tell you the first time I don't know if you ever had a chance to go but they do an illumination on the battlefield the first Saturday of each December with one candle luminaria for every single casualty and I, I have to say being a student of history my whole life I thought well I know what 23,000 looks like 
yeah, I didn't know what 23,000 looked like. When I, when I came over the first hill and there were bags, one placed every 10 feet, as far as the eye could see. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. And then I came around the next corner and they were as far as the eye could see again. And then I came over the next hill and they were as far as I could see again. I went four times with folks in my van at different times, different years. And the same thing happened every time. We'd come over the first hill and people say, oh my gosh. You come over the second hill and there was dead silence. And no one spoke again until we were completely off the battlefield because it is such an astounding sight to actually have 23,000 in front of you like that. Yeah, and I think when you apply what we talk about in the in Army Medicine today about we kind of take for granted that on a battlefield that we're going to have a system of medical evacuation and care on the battlefield. We take that for granted today. We plan for it, and we've been blessed in the last 15 years or so. We haven't really had to execute a large-scale ground combat operation of evacuation of numbers of that large. And the takeaway from the Battle of Antietam that's to me is absolutely incredible is that every one of those points of light that you saw on the battlefield, they were all evacuated within 24 hours. And I, when I tell this story, I like to make it personal. And the way you make it personal is you say, this is the person that made that happen. And that's Jonathan Letterman. And so we have a lot to thank him for and the legacy that we have today. And I don't think they came as a as haphazard or a mistake. There are definite points that we can look at in time that shows that Jonathan Letterman was doing things specifically to be able to have an outcome of evacuation in 24 hours for that particular battle. And, and I think the thing we need to remember, as you were putting things in context, go back just a month to August of 1862, where for the second time the Union Army has been defeated at a battle that they will call Bull Run, and of course uh, on the Confederate side, Manassas. And we still had patients out on the field being evacuated a week later. They have survived four or five days with no care, no shelter, no nothing. And to go from a week to a day in a month, that's an amazing feat. And we really need to look, I think, at, at how, that, how that came about because it came about really in, in two stages. It came about in an order of August of... Uh, August the 2nd, 1862, when Letterman redefined what our ambulance system should look like. And then it came again, um, you know, the Battle of Antietam proved what was strong and what was weak. And after that battle, about 45 days later, we have a plan that's going to change everything. When Letterman takes over as the director of the Army of the Potomac, you know, he, he's coming in with ideas that he's borrowed from, you know, professionals in his past that he has seen folks like uh, Dominique Jean Larey from Napoleon's Imperial Guard. He's taken that idea of the flying ambulance, flying on the battlefield with using artillery caissons to pick up people rapidly on the battlefield. So he comes in with those type of ideas, coming in with ideas that his predecessors have established, but just have not had chance to fully implement. So he's coming in with his own ideas plus barred ones, and he's able to implement them because he's Frankly, he's, he's capable, and he proves himself to the commander at the time, George McClellan. And here's one of the points that you, you were talking about in August. He identifies that there's a problem, and this is what he writes in his memoirs. It's, it's pretty uh, interesting. He says, 
The subject of the ambulance became, after the health of the troops, a matter of importance. No system had anywhere been devised for their management. They were under the control of both the medical officers and quartermasters, and as a natural consequence, little care was exercised over them by either. They could not be depended upon for any efficient service in time or action upon a march or were too often used as if they had been made for the convenience of commanding officers. So he goes on basically and just says that in order you, you identify the problem and he said the fix of this is to make the person who's responsible for the health of the soldier on the battlefield should be responsible for the ambulances to get them there to get cured and to get serviced. And that is the surgeon. And so he, he develops this plan that you said in August of creating an ambulance corps. That is huge. It is. And I, I think, you know, let's look at it from today's standpoint. You know, if you are, if, if you're a witness to a, an accident on the interstate, you call 911. You expect a series of things to happen. And one of the things you expect to happen is that somewhere uh, a fire department or rescue uh, rescue department is going to be jumping into an ambulance and turning a key and starting that ambulance and coming to get you. It's just we've never lived in in an era where that wasn't the case. And yet in Letterman's time, because the quartermaster and the medical department were sharing this responsibility with no real structure, no one was maintaining those ambulances. And it's just as important to maintain um, a harnessed wagon. You know, if the harness breaks, if the leather's not cared for, if the if the axles are not properly greased, they'll lock up. The the old wooden wheels won't function. And what we had in the early days is we had, as he states there, we had commanding officers who were using their ambulances like dredge wagons to carry inventory of things. That broke them. And we're not maintaining them. So not only does he give them a command structure and make responsibility, but he also says, okay, not only are you responsible for getting the wounded off, you're responsible to make sure that that ambulance is ready for service, properly stocked, properly maintained at all times. And today we could we couldn't imagine a world where that wasn't the case but in his time that wasn't the case he's the one that gave us that expectation 150 years later yeah and the expectation now today growing up um, i was born in uh in the 70s and so watching it on tv you were a kid yes uh, watching it on TV, you see, you know, paramedics, and we had police shows and shows about ambulances, and heck, most of the soap operas were about hospitals and emergency rooms. That's stuff that I don't know anything. I don't know life without that type of event. So today we take for granted when you have a evacuation helicopter that is a uh, actually works for a civilian hospital evacuating a patient on a highway because of an accident. You have paramedics on the ground, EMTs on the ground, taking care of that patient, dedicated to that patient. Um, care in, in route, that is the definition of a medical evacuation versus a casualty evacuation, that there's medical care in route. That was something that Letterman is implementing, and it's like you said, it's a system. The ambulance does, does not go by magic. He is putting people in responsibility, in positions to be able to you know what? You've got to feed the horse. You've got to make sure the harnesses are working. You've got to make sure the wheel is operational. So it's a whole system that he has established. And it's you know ironic. Today, you have a system that we don't even think about, but yet this is brand new implementing in the Army of the Potomac in 1862. Mm-hmm. And today we call it the Letterman Plan. And that system feeds into other events that he is able to establish. And one of the big pieces that's 
that's a systemic issue is supplies. And he identifies also that they're getting supplies for like three months at a time. And he identifies that, that, you know what, we've got an issue. I can't carry three months of supplies. First, I don't have the wagons to carry it. And so folks are getting rid of medical supplies in favor of getting to the battle on time. Um, That's a dilemma that he had to deal with. So, of course, he, he rearranges the supply system to where they're actually pushing supplies forward. He doesn't call it the the push system, but today in logistics on the battlefield, we push supplies forward, and he is able to meet a problem of too much supplies because we're getting rid of things we don't need, supposedly we don't need, but we're pushing supplies forward to enable them to do their mission on the battlefield. And that's, that's a systemic change. You know, it's interesting because one of the outcomes of the Battle of Antietam that we see is there was a great shortage among many of the surgeons on the battlefield of things like anesthesia. And unlike we tend to think of, we, we see a number of physicians who are actually writing that in the, in the absence of proper anesthesia supplies, they were not operating without it. They were simply delaying operations. And of course, the longer you delay, uh, the lower the patient outcome, the worse the patient's going to do. What I think is amazing about Letterman's method here is he looks at the system and, you know, the the most intuitive answer is, oh, you didn't have enough supplies, we should get you more. Letterman's method was to question everything down to the last question. When there were no more questions to be asked, why didn't you have enough supplies? We had to throw a bunch away. Why did you throw a bunch away? Well, it didn't all fit in the wagon. Why didn't it fit in the wagon? Well, they gave us too much. So what did you get rid of? Well, I got rid of this and this and this. And Letterman's answer is, first of all, we can't have you getting that much because then you're going to have nothing. Second of all, we're going to get you only what you need so that if your wagon does break down, you can still get to the battlefield at least by tying some of your supplies to the back of the horses that are pulling it. If we lose the wagon, we lose the wagon. But 50% of something is better than 100% of zero. Yeah. And then he he looks at it even further and says, okay, and, and why are you carrying those big hospital tents as a regiment? All of that really heavy equipment, he actually eventually bumps all the way up to the core level because the cores had the transportation assets to move it. And his theory was, you don't need one of those tents in the first 72 hours of an, of an engagement. You need those tents after 72 hours. So let's give you only what you need rather than everything that's on your list. And that asking a series of questions led him to an answer that we've continued to refine for the last 150, 455 years. Yeah, he looked at the problem, and he's one of the examples I think you and I have talked about um, outside of the podcast studio is that he, he does believe that surgery far forward within the own group of soldiers who know each other. So he emphasizes that these are soldiers at the regimental level. They know, they know each other. So that's far forward surgery, but those surgeons aren't making decisions by themselves. You, you've, you've, why don't you relay that story about how just one surgeon is not going to make that decision by himself? Yeah, and that, that is an interesting thing. So the, let's go back one step. The British back in Crimea were trying to consolidate their hospitals at the division level so that we can have more surgeons working, but they're still far enough forward that these are the regimental surgeons that are the family surgeons of the men in their regiment. And one of the things that Letterman does is Letterman also sees that the newspapers are absolutely raking his surgeons over the coals for 
doing too many amputations. And yet every doctor I've ever spoken to, both historically and in modern times, said if they had done more amputations, we would have saved more lives. So Letterman's saying, well, okay, first of all, one surgeon is going to be exhausted. We don't need one surgeon working by himself or two surgeons working together. He put together this group of three surgeons as a team and then gave each one of those surgeons three assistant surgeons so that we're reducing fatigue, which means you're going to make better decisions. And then he says, okay, if there's a capital operation required here, you're going to vote on it. It's an automatic second opinion. And it does two things. First of all, it takes the pressure off of me as a surgeon, especially when I'm exhausted, of am I making the right decision here? Second of all, it's giving the patient a higher level of care. Two or three surgeons are now looking at this same case and making a decision. But think about it too. It gives his surgeons coverage in the press. I didn't make that decision by myself. Three of the best surgeons in the brigade made that decision together. Three of the best surgeons in the division made that decision together. And then he even gives them the authority to pick who's going to do that surgery. For the betterment of the patient, if they say, you know, what's that new guy? He just got out of Harvard. He he would be perfect for this operation. They have the authority to bring him off the field, get him in there to do that surgery. Yeah. And, he, and he recognizes this. He absolutely does. And that's putting the patient first, but still having an organized structure. Yeah. And the natural consequence, and he actually mentions that in his memoirs, is that you have a higher morale. If you're being treated by your friends, the men that you have drilled with, you've trained with, you join the army with, they're taking care of you. You know that it's going to, they're going to be there for you. Higher morale. So when you look into the surgical capabilities that are pressed far forward, you look at the dedicated ambulance systems, and then the, you know, we're glossing over it today, but hospital stewards were implemented during this time to be specifically trained to take over driving ambulances and the duties of an ambulance, the duties of assisting the surgeons and the nurses. So those, all that combined is what we referenced earlier. We called the Letterman plan. Now I often make a joke. It says that after a major battle or a correction, after a major war, when we do things really well based on hard lessons, then we immediately get rid of it. And so there is the assumption that, you know what? The Letterman plan died after the civil war. But you have a different story to that, don't you? I do, and, and that's something that I'd, I'd argue with for a while because a number of historians that I've talked to over the years who are very learned, they all said, yes, but the Letterman plan at the end of the Civil War went away. And it necessarily did because we went from fighting with literally a million men in the field to individual regiments uh, that, are, that are scattered all over the continental United States fighting company-level or regimental-level fights. We can't put together a hospital with three surgeons from a division, with three surgeons assisting each one, because there aren't enough troops in the field to put those numbers together. And so it was always assumed, well, the Letterman plan was very nice, but uh, the British and the French and the Germans developed their own systems that would survive and, and come into the 20th century. And what's interesting is a, a researcher by the name of Dr. Jim Tent uh, from Maryland several years ago came to a uh, conference and he said, you know, the Prussian army picked up Letterman's plan in 1864 when they asked for copies of that plan and all of the orders from the Surgeon General's office and were given them. And they were sent back to Berlin and everyone sat up and took notice. And he said, as a matter of fact, according to my research in the, in the Prussian army archives in Berlin, it appears that there, there was a concerted effort on the part of the German, in this case, the Prussian general staff, to actually make sure that Letterman's plan, as they interpreted it, 
was in place prior to how the opening of hostilities with Austria in 1866. And he he went for, and now everybody's just amazed because we, you know, to the best of my knowledge, this really hasn't been well publicized before. And he said, not only that, but we know that they modified that system and improved upon it prior to um, their war with France in 1870, the whole reunification of Germany. And he said, and the amazing thing is, is they came up with this brilliant, absolutely fabulous plan to make sure that no one would ever know where they got the plan from. So they came up with a secret code name for it, and they called it the American Plan. And I actually have a copy of it on my desk from 1904 that talks about Letterman, talks about how the plan was brought in. What's even more amazing is that the Prussian army in 1866 had the lowest mortality rate of any army in combat in the 19th century. Until 1870, when the Prussian army, I don't sound like a broken record, had the lowest mortality rate of any army in combat in the 19th century. By utilizing the Letterman plan of organization, and then by utilizing later on the advances that Lister came up with in antiseptic surgery and the whole germ theory, they were able to reduce their their casualty rate or their mortality rate to the lowest it would be during an entire century. And the the core of that is what they called the American plan. Exactly. And we now we just we reference it as the Letterman plan. And you know, honestly, in today's the the combat that we see today, ironically reflects the combat that we see after the American Civil War. Absolutely. So, so in the magic of history, I'm going to have us think about this. You have armies fighting in the Civil War, and it goes back down to the regimental level. Well, we planned during the Cold War army-level fighting, and then we get into our modern global war on terrorism and a current fight that I as a soldier and then um, the generations that have come in the last 19 years – they're fighting a brigade combat team fight. So there is two points of time that reflect each other very similarly. And so what we're projecting into the future is this idea of large-scale ground combat. So what can we take from our history? Go to 1867, where you're fighting on the frontier of North America, to uh, what we did in the Middle East and in Central Asia with a brigade combat team. But now we're starting to think, you know what? We might get into a large, large combat scenario, multi-domain scenarios. So what can history bring to help us define what we need to do for the future? You know, I think it's interesting. Can you imagine for a moment the frustration of a surgeon who worked throughout the Civil War with all of the advantages of the divisional hospital as they were set up and then finding yourself in the in you know, a, an epidemic or in a large-scale Indian fight where you're the only doctor around in the West in the 1870s. I think as you look at it, you're exactly right. We've been fighting this anti-insurgency, and now we're looking and saying, what happens if we have to go back to a fight like a World War II-type fight where we actually have large-scale combat going on? What do we do? And I think the first thing we need to do is realize that's why organizations like ours, the the Office of, of History, the historians are the ones that are the, the keepers of the institutional knowledge. This is why we pass this history along so that people remember, just like Letterman didn't invent everything he did out of whole cloth. He looked at Perret. He looked at the Crimean War. He looked at what the other people were doing around him during the Civil War. 
we need to have officers and we need to have non-coms who are well enough versed in historical thinking, not that they know all the history, but that they know there are answers in history, or at least there are things that can lead them to answers today by informing their current decisions. That's why we exist, and that's why podcasts like this, and even the required history classes within uh, Army education, that's why they exist, because people need to know this has happened in the past, and here are how they solved it in the past, now, informed with that knowledge, what are you going to do? Yeah, I think uh, part of our mission in the U.S. Army Medical Center of Excellence is that we're teaching the future. So every Army Medical Department personnel, whether they're a non-commissioned officer or a private or an officer, they're coming through and they're learning these principles. And my goal, I know for me personally, I hope that there is the realization, that aha moment. You know what? I don't have to figure this out by myself. We have precedents. We could just need to draw upon our past. Let's create the American plan. Let's not forget it like we did when we had to work out on the frontier. And the piece about the medicine in the Army is that it's not just taking care of soldiers that are sick, but really the ultimate goal is to enable a soldier to be able to be useful to the commander as a fighting element. And... You know, Letterman realized this, and here's a quote that I, I want to share with y'all that uh, he kind of s- puts it all in a couple sentences. He says, a corps of medical officers was not established solely for the purpose of attending the wounded and sick. The proper treatment of these sufferers is certainly a matter of very great importance and is an imperative duty, but the labors of medical officers cover a more extended field. The leading idea, which should be constantly kept in view, is to strengthen the hands of the commanding general by keeping his army in the most vigorous health, thus rendering it in the highest degree efficient for enduring fatigue and privation and for fighting. To conserve the fighting strength. Exactly. It's, it's the slogan we see every day when we walk in our offices. And what's interesting, you know, in our first podcast, we talked about George Washington and his understanding that without a healthy army, without an army that was able to endure in the field, he could not succeed. Letterman is stating it in a much clearer way. And what's interesting is Letterman, and I've after reading his, his memoirs and other writings many, many times, what you see in there is he understands and, and really articulates for the first time that the army has a mission, fight our country's wars, save the nation. And that medicine has a very specific sub-mission. Make sure that the army is capable, physically capable, mentally capable, of carrying out that mission. And morale is part of that. Let's face it, if you think you're going to go and and be shot in this battle and there's no way you're going to live because medicine is terrible, how's your morale? If you know as a citizen of 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 a republic that if you send your son or your daughter to war, that they're not going to be taken care of, and if they're wounded, they're probably going to die. How are you going to support the Army and the government in that mission? Letterman laid it out so well. Army, you have your mission. Medicine, you have a submission supporting that Army mission that is vital to success. We cannot do the mission of the Army without doing the mission of medicine. And it's that understanding of mission and submission that is the other thing that I think we constantly have to remind ourselves of when we're training our soldiers, when we're going in the field. Why do we do what we do? 
we do what we do to save the country, to make sure that our nation endures. Yes, and I think that kind of brings a good closure to the Battle of Antietam. So what? You know, so what is there was a genius who pulled things together and made a system. That system was used by other nations. In fact, around the world, we talked about earlier about how you can see an ambulance going into a traffic accident and a helicopter evacuating them. We see it in the civilian world. It's been adopted all over the world, this system that we now call the Letterman system. But military medicine is for a reason, just like you said. It's for the, the enduring legacy of our republic. And that's the so what for today in the Battle of Antietam. But what I solicit folks that are listening to the podcast or going through the Army Medical Department Museum, give us some ideas of things that you want to see an enduring legacy of, or if you have questions about it, we're asking that you contact us and let us know what, what you would like to hear about. Otherwise, George and I are just going to continue to talk each other to death. Well, Scott, the real problem is I'd much rather talk about what our listeners want to talk about than what you and I want to talk about, because I've heard what you and I want to talk about, and we've pretty much beaten it to death. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's time It's time to open this up to fresh air, and I would love to hear what other people think, because they're going to have insights that are going to open our eyes. And the fact is that some of the questions we ask may change the way we look at things and may very well change the way we teach them. And I know that our audience primarily is going to be that 18 to 35-year-old demographic, whether that's a young NCO or a young private or a young lieutenant. Um, We want to hear feedback. And we're trying our best, trying to think of a new way. Uh, There's different modes of learning. And I know that a lot of young folks, that that are those that are younger than I am, are uh, learning through podcasts. And if... If you could have a game with a purpose, that's what we like to do with these podcasts. Yep. And let, let's hope we get a lot of people outside of the Army who start looking too, because I wish I would have known this when I was going through school to be an EMT. I wish I would have known this when I was going through firefighting school, because this relates also to everything we do in civilian medicine. And, and so for anyone, even if you're just interested in making sure that the next generation is properly cared for, on the civilian side, this information is important, and I, I hope people pick up on that. Yes, I as well. So with that, uh, thank you all for listening, and George, say goodbye, George. Uh, goodbye, George. And Scott, have a great afternoon, and thanks for listening as well. I, I hope everyone has a great day, and I hope you'll come back for our next podcast. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To learn more about the Army Medical Department's Center of History and Heritage, please visit our website at history.amedd.army.mil. All of our contact information is also available at www.soundcloud.com forward slash Army Medicine History. And you can also find us online by searching at Army Medicine History. The Army Medical Department Museum is free and open to the public. Monday through Saturday, 10 to 4 p.m., If you do not already have a DOD identification card, please remember to bring a valid ID to the Walter Street Gate located on the south side of Fort Sam Houston off I-35. For more information, please call 210-221-9205. For current base entry requirements, please visit the Joint Base San Antonio website at www.jbsa.mil or call 210-221-9205. 921-9205. 921-9205. 921-9205. 921-9205. 921-9205. 921-9205. 921-9205. 921-9205. 921-9205. 921-9205. 921-9205. 921-9205. 921-9205. 921-